pastor asked me to read some scripture as a prelude to uh, the sermon today. And uh, Romans 7, 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am not of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. As you listen to that excellent reading by our brother Nick Smaby, I wonder how many of us noticed the personal pronoun repeated over and over again, I. You almost can't listen to that reading without that I jumping out at you over and over and over again. Now, if you're like me, you want to count up how many times that personal pronoun occurred. Are you ready? In the space of 11 verses, 26 times. 26 times. Now this is probably the most difficult section in the whole book of Romans to interpret. And the key question is really the identity of this I. Who is the I in Romans chapter 7? Now, three answers have been given. First answer, this is Paul, before he became a believer. So this I is a non-Christian who is burdened with sin and struggling. The second answer is, this is Paul, the immature Christian. He's trying to live the Christian life in his own strength and failing. And what he needs to realize is he needs the power of the Holy Spirit to help him gain the victory. The third answer to this question is, this is Paul, the spiritually mature Christian, fighting the good fight against sin. Now this question has been fiercely debated for centuries from earliest times by Bible students. And actually the answer that we give to the question determines how we will view the whole Christian life. Here's my answer this morning that I want to give to you. I am convinced the 26 eyes in this passage refer to Paul, the spiritually mature and healthy Christian. 
That's what I believe is being described here. Now, as you are looking at the screen this morning, you will notice in the center this picture is a man who was a very well-known pastor. His name was Pastor Alan Redpath. And he was well-known in England. He was well-known in America. He pastored the famous Moody Church in Chicago for nine years. Did you notice who is standing to his right? Uh, That's the young Billy Graham, isn't it? And pretty good company for Pastor Redpath to be standing in. Here's what Pastor Redpath one time said. The Christian life doesn't get easier as one gets older. Now by the time I'm finished with this message, I will tell you how he learned this in his own experience. But when I was a young Christian, I did not know this. Now I'm an older Christian. And I know he was right. I know he was right. Why is this true? Well, the Bible teaches us that we have three enemies. And you know these enemies well. They are the world, the devil, and the flesh. Let me ask you a couple questions this morning. Does the devil ever give up? Does the world ever give up? Does the flesh ever give up? The answer is no. And it is this battle with the flesh that the Apostle Paul is describing in Romans 7, and he is telling us very simply, it never gets easy. Now this morning, as we look at Romans 7, I want to draw uh, several conclusions that I think will be helpful for us in our Christian walk as we look at this struggle and relate it to our own lives. Let's just pray for a moment and then we'll look at them one by one. Lord, how important it is that we have a true and accurate understanding of the Christian life. Lord, the doctrine of sanctification is set forth so clearly in the book of Romans. But if we don't understand the truths that are here, we can very easily misunderstand how we live the Christian life. And so as we come to this very debated passage, help us to be clear in our thinking. Help us to understand the truth if you have revealed it to us so that we might follow you as you have called us to. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now here's the first conclusion that I want to draw this morning from what Paul says, and it's this. The greatest saints admit sin is an ongoing struggle. What we read here in Romans 7 is not an aberration. It is not an unusual experience. The godliest saints understand this struggle. The great theologian of yesteryear, Charles Hodge, said this, No believer, however advanced in holiness, cannot adopt the language used by the Apostle Paul. And so this morning, as we sit here in the early service, and there are people with all levels of spiritual growth amongst us, not a single one of us cannot adopt this language for our lives. And as we look down through the uh, history, what we discover is that many other believers have experienced the very same thing that Paul is writing about here, believers at a very high level of spiritual experience. Let's look at just a few of them. 
If you want to turn and look at David in Psalm 19, verses 12 to 14, and I've put the passage here in front of you, I think this is probably one of the clearest parallels in the Old Testament to what Paul is describing in the New Testament. Look at what David says at the end of Psalm 19. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I will be free of guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now Psalm 19 is describing David's love for God's word. This is a man who is passionately in love with the truth. And yet, did you notice here, he describes four types of sins that he struggles with. In verse 13, he describes deliberate sins, and he is concerned that these will control me, and he cries out for help from God. In verse 14, he describes words of my mouth, which he says, may not be pleasing in the Lord's sight. In verse 14, he refers to the meditations of his heart. The word meditations are thoughts or a process of thoughts. And he's aware that his thoughts can be sinful. And then look at verse 12. He talks about hidden sins. These are not sins that are committed in secret, but there are sins of which David himself does not recognize. Think about this. David is so aware of the sinfulness of his own heart that he knows he's not even conscious of sins that he commits. Uh, In the Net Bible, there's a little note at this point, and listen to what it says. This question makes the point that perfect moral discernment is impossible to achieve. When he says, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? What he is saying is that it is inevitable that even those with good intentions will sin on occasion. Now this is exactly what Paul is saying when he says in verse 15, I do not understand my own actions. The word understand there means he cannot fully comprehend the depth of his own sin. So David and Paul are saying exactly the same thing. We cannot achieve sinless perfection because we cannot even detect the hidden sins we are not conscious of. Now we could go to Isaiah. You know that Isaiah was the greatest of the writing prophets. There's a reason why the book of Isaiah stands first at the major and minor prophets. The prophecies of Isaiah about the Lord Jesus Christ are unparalleled. And yet when you come to chapter 6 and Isaiah sees this vision of God and he knows, I'm in the presence of the Lord. What does this godly man say? He says, woe is me, for I'm undone. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. And Isaiah becomes aware of his own sinfulness. 
If we were to come to a modern example today, we could come to this man here, Pastor Ray Ortland. Pastor Ortland is a pastor to pastors. He's the son of a very well-known radio pastor with a rich spiritual background. He's a contributor to the ESV Study Bible. He's written books like A Passion for God. And yet, look at what this godly, honest man says about himself in one of his sermons. He said, I could warn everyone I meet, Hi, I'm Ray Ortland, and I'm contagious with leprosy of sin. You'd better keep your distance. I might mess up your life. And then he said, even at our best moments, when we do what's right, we're not as good as we look. And how many of us would say, Amen to that. I wonder if you've ever done a good thing, only to later realize that all of your motives were not pure. Recently, I had that experience. I did something that all of us today would describe as a good thing, but as I later reflected upon it, I realized that one of my motives in the good thing that I did was not a pure motive. And then I read verse 21 of this chapter, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. And all of us know hidden motives, egotism, stubbornness, pride, often taint all we do. And have you discovered this in your life? The more you grow as a Christian, the more you're aware of this. The more mature you become the more you are aware of the inner struggle with sin. Now here's a second conclusion that I think we can draw from this passage. Healthy believers stay in the fight against sin. Romans 7, 14-25 is not the confession of a lazy Christian. This is not somebody who feels, well, you know, a little bit of sin is okay because after all, no one is perfect. This man, this I that we read about here, intensely longs to be holy. He is not giving up. Look at the things that he says. In verse 15, he says that he hates sin. In verse 18, he says he desires to do the right. In verse 19, he disapproves of his sin. And finally, in verse 24, when he cries out, it is very, very clear he is distressed by his condition. This is why I'm absolutely convinced that Paul is speaking as a believer. Let me ask you this morning, do any unbelievers that you know take sin this seriously? I don't think we find that. This is the product of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. What would a non-believer generally say? Well, Paul, don't be so hard on yourself. After all, Paul, you're only human. Nobody's perfect. Don't take this so seriously. 
But the healthy Christian understands I have got to remain in the fight and this is a fight that I will have my entire Christian life. Now, I want to say to you this morning, when I was in my 20s as a Christian, I did not understand this. I thought that one day I would reach a place where sin would no longer bother me. That I would be free from the temptations that plagued me in my 20s. And I thought there would come this day when I would just sort of be on cruise control and I would be riding above it all, you know, just in perpetual victory and freedom. Boy, was that a fallacy. Was that a fallacy. What a mistake that was. Listen to what Bible teacher Timothy George says. We all need to hear this very clearly. So long as we remain in this present life, we never outgrow or transcend the spiritual conflict Paul was describing in this passage. There is no spiritual technique or second blessing that can propel the believer onto a higher plane of Christian living where this battle must no longer be fought. How true that is. The healthy Christian knows the Christian life is a fight all the way, and it's only when we stop fighting that we become vulnerable to the sin that resides within us. Now, here's a third conclusion. Conclusion number three. Christians can and do make progress in holiness. One of the most important things we need to understand is that Paul here is not describing the totality of the Christian life. What he is describing is one side of the Christian life, the side of the Christian life when we sin, and when we sin, we feel exactly the way Paul felt here. By the way, how do you think I felt when I realized I had done a good thing? But one of the motives in that good thing was an impure motive. How do you think I felt? Well, I felt exactly the way Paul is describing himself here. I thought, oh, I just can't believe this. Here I did something that is a good deed to somebody else. But as I look at it now, in hindsight, I realize one of the motives that fed into it was a very self-centered motive. And I thought, even in my goodness, I have failed to be all that I know that I should be. This is only one side of the Christian life. The other side is that we can and we do make progress in holiness. Look at chapter 8 and notice that this is God's design for us. Look what he says in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now Paul is describing the other side of the Christian life. Look down at verse 13 and notice how he continues, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That expression, put to death, is in the present tense. And it means our putting to death the deeds of the body. So what it means is we progressively kill the actions of the flesh as we yield daily to the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, This is the other side of the Christian life. We do experience change and growth. We do not always experience defeat in our life, but when we do experience defeat, we feel exactly like Paul does in chapter 7. But the powerful Holy Spirit exerts His presence in our lives so that we also overcome sin. So the other side of this is all Christians can, and they do make progress in holiness. Now this leads us to a very important place in the study of Romans as we prepare to enter into Romans chapter 8. And that is, how does Romans 7 relate to Romans 8? And there are at least two views of this relationship, and it's very important as we prepare to enter Romans chapter 8, that we understand which one is really the more accurate one. Some teach this, that Romans 7 leads to Romans 8, and the defeat that we see in Romans chapter 7 is replaced by the victory that is described in Romans 8. And so here's the teaching. You're trying to live the Christian life in your own strength and you're failing. And what you need to do is recognize that you can't live it in your own strength. You need to get out of Romans 7 and into Romans 8 and let the Holy Spirit live the Christian life for you and lift you up to this plane of victory where you will never struggle anymore. Is that what's going on here? I don't believe so. Instead, I believe that Romans 7 and 8 are like these two parallel lines. They run together and they describe the experience of the Christian at the same time. Listen to how Pastor Ray Stedman so beautifully puts this. It's so very helpful in a sermon he preached on this text. Listen to this. There are teachers who teach that this passage in Romans 7 is something a Christian goes through but once. Then he gets out of it and moves into Romans 8, never to return to Romans 7 again. Nothing could be further from the truth. Even as mighty a man as Paul went through it 
again and again. This is a description of what every believer will go through many times in his experience because sin has the power to deceive us and to cause us to trust in ourselves even when we are not aware that we are doing so. And that is so very, very helpful. You see, Romans 7 can keep us from two deadly errors in the Christian life. The first error is pride. That I have arrived and I have no more room to grow. That is deadly, deadly to spiritual growth. If I believe that I've achieved this higher plane and therefore I'm at the pinnacle of Christian experience and I have no more room to grow, I will become presumptuous and prideful and stagnant in my Christian experience. And Romans 7 slays that kind of presumption. The other deadly error is this. Hopeless defeat that we can never become the Christian that we want to be. And so why should I try? This is where I want to be, and I find myself always falling short. Why not just give up the whole thing in despair? You know what Romans chapter 7 says to us? None of us is ever all that we ever want to be. We never are. None of us has ever experienced total spiritual victory. But that should not be a cause for despair. What that should be is a cause for us to continue growing because it is in continuing to grow in our walk with Christ that is the only safe place for us to be. Think then about what Romans 7 is teaching us. Romans 7 teaches us that I hate my sin, though I am not surprised by it. And God is certainly not surprised by it. And then Romans 7 teaches us to keep growing spiritually, because that is the only safe direction for a Christian to go. No Christian can ever stand still in the Christian life. If we do, our sins will ultimately overtake us. If we are not growing, we will go backwards. The only safe direction for the Christian is to go forward as we follow the Lord Jesus. Now here's another conclusion. Number four. God wants us to depend ultimately upon Jesus Christ alone. Notice where Paul comes to. Look at verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And notice what he exclaims. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
And then he concludes with the same struggle that he had just been talking about. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, my inner renewed mind by the power of the Holy Spirit, but with my flesh. There's a continual battle as I oftentimes serve the law of sin. Now there are two things that we cannot do. Number one, we cannot justify ourselves. The Bible says in Romans 3.20, by the works of the law shall no man be justified in his sight. The second thing we cannot do is to sanctify ourselves. Do you remember in that wonderful passage in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And He's talking there about abiding in Him and growing spiritually. He comes to that verse where He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. And He's talking about the spiritual life. He's talking about growing in holiness and godliness. And he's saying to his disciples, I want you to understand, you cannot sanctify yourselves. It can only come about as you come to me. And I work in your life. You know the interesting thing about that statement, apart from me you can do nothing? Jesus said this just shortly after all his disciples said they would die for him. You go to Matthew chapter 26 and Peter leads the way. I'll die for you if I have to. And the other disciples all said the same thing. A few hours later, they all forsook Jesus and fled. What was Jesus trying to do when He said to them, apart from Me, you can do nothing? He was trying to strip them of all self-reliance. And letting them know from day one all the way through, the only way you're going to be sanctified is by ultimately depending upon Christ and Christ alone. Now let me go back this morning to this experience by Pastor Alan Redpath. And let me tell you how he learned this in his own life as a well-known pastor, Christian leader on two continents. Two years after leaving the pastorate of Moody Church, he suffered a near-fatal stroke. And he sank into a deep depression. If you've ever been laid aside by an illness for a period of time, wondering, will I ever recover? You know how despondency can come over you. And here's what this man of God said. During that time of depression, he had terribly wicked thoughts. He was shocked by the wicked thoughts that came into his mind. And this is what he prayed. He prayed, Oh Lord, deliver me from this attack of the devil. Take me home right now. He was so horrified at the wicked thoughts 
that he wanted to die. And he asked God to take him home. But this is what he sensed the Lord saying to him as he countered that prayer. It is I, your Savior, who has brought this experience into your life to show you this is the kind of person with all your sinful thoughts and temptations which you thought were things of the past that you will always be. Read the last words with me. Except for my grace. Do you know Pastor Redpath recovered? He went on to do ministry. Many years later, I heard him personally preach. And isn't this what Romans 7 ultimately teaches us? We need Jesus every day. It is all of His grace. And it is His work and work alone that enables any of us. Let's thank Him, shall we? Bow with me this morning. Father, You know the twin dangers of our Christian life. To be presumptuous, prideful, thinking we have reached the pinnacle of Christian experience and therefore become complacent. And you know one of the greatest dangers for the Christian is the danger of standing still. Lord, for others of us today, there is the danger of despairing hopelessness. Why should I keep trying? I never seem to be able to reach all that I would like to be. I see others living on a level of victory that I can't seem to experience. What's wrong with me? Why is the battle such a struggle? And Lord, we know the enemy of our souls, the evil one, loves to see it when we give up. When in despair, 
we say, it's no use. I can't make progress. And these twin errors, which if we are honest, often beset us, are the very reasons you gave us Romans 7. Lord, for those of us who need to be humbled today, help us to see our true selves. And in seeing our true selves, help us to keep pressing tightly and closely to Jesus. For those of us who might be discouraged in the Christian walk, because we haven't reached that carefree place where struggle is over and we are cruising, may we see that You have intended that the Christian life is to be a fight all the way until Jesus takes us home. May we be encouraged today with the Apostle Paul who says, I have fought the good fight I've kept the faith. I've run the race. Who said to Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Who said about himself, I am not perfected. I have not attained all this. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and reaching forward to what is ahead, I press towards the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And help us to see that as we follow in this way, while we will never be all that we hope to be, We will make progress. Jesus will change us. The Holy Spirit will transform us. And we will be more and more like Jesus. Minister these great truths now to our hearts. For Jesus' sake. 